This podcast is produced by Arts Council England. For more content like this, visit artscouncil.org.uk or soundcloud.com forward slash Arts Council England. Okay, so questions for our three speakers. Um, yes, the gentleman in the plaid shirt, um, remember to say who you are and where you're yeah. from. Thanks. Um, I'm Tom Jordan, Digital Coordinator for Interplay and Leeds. Um, oh, what? I was just asking... Everybody? Didn't hear the organisations. Interplay, Interplay Theatre in Leeds. Um, I'm just wondering, it's, it's in terms of development, really. Um, is it an issue as to which platforms, I'm sort of talking like C Sharp, Flash, uh, PHP development, do you find um, across both web and mobile applications, do you find it's an issue as to what platforms to work on? Um, and do you think that because reach is so important that um, working in particular platforms, that reach, it becomes so important that it stops us using emerging um, development platforms. Well, I, 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 can, I can start. Yeah. Um, we, we found that when, we, um, when, when Apple arrived and everybody got excited about it, we had to really look at our multimedia content because a lot of it had been created in Flash. Um, and we've so we've had to relook at that. Um, I recently went to a conference um, last week where they were, they were talking a lot about HTML5, and it appears that that seems to be um, quite a flexible thing to start using. And I think it, I, I, I'm not as technical perhaps as, as I need to be, but you know, in terms of um, the future, I think HTML5 will will come up as actually one of the most useful tools. Um, and I think we. We're always trying to look at Apple and Android and, and other, other operating platforms. And actually, we've come to the solution that Android is the best for us to develop um, our own multimedia tools on, simply because it is more flexible. And it means that um, the multimedia guide that I showed earlier that we've just launched, that is based on Android. And it means that we can create something for that and then push it out to Android stores. And of course, for a lot of um, the... Uh, well, most of the world, with the exception of the UK, Android is a much more popular um, platform um, than Apple. So I think it's very difficult to tell what's happening, but in short, we're kind of exploring everything and trying to um, be one step ahead before it, you know, the game changes again. I would totally um, say stay away from apps and do mobile-friendly. Um, we've We've just gone in our, through our own Culture 24 Org UK website down the whole route. And we had someone in-house doing it all. And we built uh, a middleware platform that took all our APIs and can spit out mobile and can spit out apps. The problem with as soon as you go down any kind of app route is that you've got all the different platforms. You need someone in-house. Every time they change the operating system, it breaks. And it's, it's just a whole nother world and a whole nother set of problems that, that you'd have to have such a good use case that the app was really the target product for the target market. And that actually, from the research we did in Let's Get Real, the biggest growing thing on most people's websites is mobile access. No one has mobile-friendly websites. It's, that is the best thing to do. I, I would do start, I totally start with that um, and, and just, you know, they just don't do the app. It's kind of like, if you, you know, if you can, unless you can do it properly, which you probably won't be able to because you won't have enough money, you won't have the in-house skills, and you'll run out of the capacity. You, but you might be able to do a mobile-friendly version of your site that might actually do just what you need it to do for your audience. 
I agree. Right. I agree. <laughs> to be honest, we I don't really have them? an enormous Okay, so the Arts Council shouldn't find any apps for at least a year until everyone's got their mobile-friendly yeah. sites sorted. Okay, so that the Arts Council shouldn't. <laughs> Another question. We've killed them. Yeah. Yes. Uh, Matt Davis from MDMA uh, Video Production. Um, just thinking about the, especially in your particular uh, field, Jessica, about um, lots of material out there in terms of video. And somebody's mentioned today access for people who perhaps um, have, have uh, some sort of challenge out there. But what I'm interested in finding out is, is there a platform developing for, shall we say, crowdsourcing or open sourcing subtitling? Because we find lots of people out there, remember when IMDb started up, uh, lots of people were writing great reviews for that sort of thing. People out there want to contribute, want to participate. And so many times I've known people, I've got connections in Norway, saying Nor Norwegian to English, English-Norwegian translations done officially are rubbish and they could do so much better of a job. Okay, there are lots of films out there in different languages, but yet the market seems to make sure that every single video platform, every single um, subtitling platform is a, their own in-house solution to that. And do you have any leverage in trying to say, bring some of your material, and say that other people write the subtitles for that, or the captions, or the notes, or the, you know, in that area of outsourcing some of that information to out people out there who are specialists, if not professionals. Um, well, we, we do use um, specialist companies to do our um, sign language tours um, and our um, tours for uh, visitors with visual impairments. Um, sorry, if I got the, the point of the question. <laughs> It's obviously those, those are the specialist um, areas you know, in terms of sign language, but even down to the, the simplest form, which is just give us subtitles on video, or the ability to add from a third party subtitles to that. Without do you mean the subtitle? Who do you mean adding the subtitle? The outsourced fans, you go with your audience, that's so the audience. you should participate. For example... So um, as you're walking around the gallery, you might want to comment. Just in, again, let's think broader than that terms of just here we have assets, either audio assets or video assets or picture assets. Mm. And this ability, for example, a thing called smiles, the, the um, ability language for interactivity. And we seem to have lost sight of that in this new world of mobile friendly applications. And also the cost of creating the, the content for that, where there's, again, when you say crowdsourcing the, um, uh, the funding for certain artworks, other people wish to participate by donating their specialist knowledge to your particular work, say bringing an author's work from one language to another, or a filmmaker's work from one to another. I think, I think there are things like that out there, and I do think, um, for example, crowdfunding platforms enable people to communicate with their audience and, and, and have these live blogs and have live feeds going on. I think the whole way that people are communicating with one another. There are ways to do that. I mean, what you're saying, it reminds me of a website that I do know called History Pin, which is obviously a sort of culture history site. And that's around mapping. And that's a kind of, that's looking at maps and then getting people to add in their photos or add in their memories of a place. So you can look at one site and you can see places from. And I think there are lots of ways for that communication to happen, but I don't know if it happens on your no, I mean, user-generated content is something that's always been um, 
a, re a really exciting thing, particularly for our for our clients. Um, and it has been done in a few um, few cases. For example, there was an education um, tour that was done at the Tate, where um, students could go around and write notes or take pictures or um, draw pictures, you know, and and on the device, which was then uploaded onto a server, which then arrived in their classroom, and they they could make some fabulous multimedia presentation out of it once they got home. But it's still it's still in the in terms of mobile, it's nothing that we are currently, you know, looking to do. Having said that, mobile's developing so quickly. I think um, the audiences want to be involved, and I think the, the more we can get um, audiences involved in, in things like using their core skills, then it's happening it in happen. gaming as well. Um, I work with a, an arts organisation called Coney quite regularly, and they create games for adults, which are basically stories um, that people can participate in. And they're definite, but they're very online and they use a variety of platforms and technologies that enable people playing those games to communicate with one another or leave messages or leave notes or feedback. Or, so it is, it is, it's definitely happening and people are just using different tools to do it, I think. It's yeah, there's a, a, an example I came across of that is um, a friend of mine who... Uh, Set up a crowd a crowdfunding model for his uh, for to release a record, and, um, and he, he, what he wanted to vision was the money. But what he found, as Hen says, is that what that leads to is a different set of relationships with his audience, which he then used. He you know he, it came out. I mean, in the conversations he was having, that he had a big audience in Germany. He's a singer songwriter. They wanted they wanted to know what the they wanted a German translation of the album. They you know one of his fans sourced translated his lyrics for him, and he then used that to record a, a German version of the album. Yeah. So it was and it was only facilitated. It wasn't it wasn't deliberately done, but it was because he had this closer relationship that he was able to draw on his fans' expertise and right. and and mm. and facilitate that 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 to happen. Another question. So there was somebody up there who just had a question. I'll come to you next. Uh, hi, my name is Vong, uh, and I study here. Um, I have a question about uh, the physical, uh, uh, the future of physical cultural um, uh, institutions in the sense that um, it looks like museums are kind of moving to online platform. I know Google went into museums and, um, and it photographed some artwork. So I'm just curious what your thoughts are uh, for the future of art galleries and whatnot. I'm not worried about it. No. I don't, I, it's yeah. an illusion that, that digital replaces the physical. I don't think that's, there's any evidence of that at all. In fact, I think it's the opposite. Mm. And I think Google Art is a bit of a kind of very niche, sort of gimmicky thing with a few institutions. And I don't see them being able to scale that. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> and, it, and we should do it better, really. I think that um, I, I just, I don't believe that um, that these applications or technology is going to is going to replace the desire for human interaction. I don't think it's the same thing if you can look at a painting online as if you can look at a painting in front of you. Because I, I think I think that the way technology will develop is to provide ways of people drawing information. So when you are standing in front of that painting, you might be able to draw on a painting somewhere else or compare it or things like that on your phone. But yeah, I don't think it will. There, there are some, I, I completely agree. I think the physical experience is, is always best. And I, to be slightly controversial, I didn't think the Google Art Project 
showed the museums or the galleries at their best at all. And, and I think, um, yeah, I, I think there's nothing like going to the Louvre and seeing the Mona Lisa, you know, as it should be. But there are some interesting things going on. Um, I, I believe it was at the Met um, last year where they did an augmented, a virtual exhibition using augmented reality. Um, I'm sure people have heard about it, where you could hold up your phone. I may be wrong in the Met, it may be somewhere else. You hold up your phone and um, through this, this software application, a, a piece of art appears dangling in the ceiling. And actually, as you move it around, there's all sorts of exhibits appearing. So it was kind of a virtual art exhibition within you know, one of the most famous uh, museums in the world. And that, that's quite interesting to extend that experience. But I think it's because you're in the Met and you're seeing something that not everyone can see. I think that's the hook rather than it being virtual. It's an alternative medium, really, mm. isn't it? It's another one. But it was the, the Steedlick was the, was the museum that oh, developed sorry, that technology. Yeah. And they did it because their museum was shut. So they did a, a thing in the square outside the museum when the museum was shut. And the, the way that it worked wasn't really because the success wasn't because everybody enjoyed the experience of this, this sort of horrible um, little kind of 3D flat objects spouting in space. What people were enjoying was the event. Mm. They did it as an event and everyone was standing around together and it was like, this is really completely crazy, here we are. So it's like you, you make it a social thing. And that was, I thought, very interesting. Um, yeah, the, exper the, the experience. The experience, yeah, because the technology is really behind. That's like the web 10 years ago. It's mm. just nowhere augmented reality. It's, it's, the user experience is awful. But the ideas are fantastic, really fantastic ideas. Really. And I think, yeah, that's the same reason you're getting art coming out of the galleries. I think what's much more interesting is actually that people have a desire to put art on or take it into different spaces or take it into public spaces. And the reason that's happening is because people want to share in events together and access people who, who wouldn't go into the galleries because yeah. they don't think they're for them. So I, I think it's just involving, it won't get rid of them. Yeah, it's no, it's no coincidence that the greatest boom in UK cinema attendances coincided with the uh, mass adoption of VCRs. Uh, yes, yeah, sorry, I, I, uh, you, you had something to ask. I just wanted to ask, uh, which company are you working with? on connecting the social media with the art you were Me? talking? Yes, um, sorry. I run a platform called We Did This. Yeah, yeah, uh, but um, somebody was asking, is it Kony? Kony or Kobe? Oh, oh, yeah, I was talking about an arts organization called Kony, which is C-O-N-E-Y. Like in Coney Island. Like in Coney, meaning rabbit, yeah. yeah. There's a secret rabbit that runs it. Hello, uh, Peter Murphy, Burke Arts Council England, so I should really know the answer to this. We've had the uh, golden age, 10 years of public subsidy for the arts. Necessity has really pushed us into this new place where we're exploring, um, connecting with audiences, new business models, getting the art out of the galleries. Will it ever return to what it was, or are we entering a brand new era of the arts? What, public funding? Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, I'm not, I'm not going to claim to know the answer to that question. My, I would think that, I think what does need to happen in the arts is I think what, that the arts has become to rely on and got used to um, a level of funding from the public sector 
I think that there has been obviously this period of boom that has enabled that to happen. Uh, the arts goes in up and down, and I think often some of the most exciting art comes out of the most yeah. difficult times, um, as does kind of cult as does cultural development. I think the arts will always exist. I think the arts are at the foundations of culture, community. I mean, for me, the arts is far more um, about what comes out of it and the relationships and communities and things that are explored often than the final piece itself. That's my, I'm really interested in the social of it. Um, so, but I also think, hopefully, as things like crowdfunding grow, as, as micro-philanthropy grow, grows, and people start to understand again why art costs lots of money and why you can't just pull it out of a hat and what, you know, that actually it does need to be subsidised as well. So hopefully we'll come to some kind of balance where, you know, if you can evidence that it's really wanted, then people will be happy to put money towards it. But I'm, I'm not even sure the biggest problem is the cuts. The, no. The, you know, the... the um, people's relationship to the to the world around them has changed because of, of the way that digital has become so social and your expectations of things and the whole attention share issue around what you can spend your time doing and your desire to participate in that process is been in, is just cha just changed. So it's kind of how are we um, relating to that is I think the bigger question. I think as well, just to just to add that um, certainly for museums and art galleries, in recent years they've become a lot more um, savvy in terms of commercial awareness and things. If we just look at things like the Tate brand, it, it's a globally recognised brand now. The V&A had a rebranding a few years ago, and now you know you can buy a V&A styled mug in I don't know Marks and Spencer, whatever. It's it's they're they're definitely broadening out and becoming a lot more commercially savvy and I, I think that's a really good thing and I think um, by developing these brands and this kind of brand allegiance as well hopefully that will keep um, other revenue sources going um, such as their merchandise or you know and their tickets so uh, yeah just to finish really quickly I, I I also think the thing with the arts is it's about the content and it's about the ideas and I don't think it matters how much branding you, I don't think branding will sustain that relationship. I think it has to be about the ideas and why and communicating those ideas and how exciting they are. And I think that people will get bored of things unless those ideas continue to be brilliant. And what I do think happened when we did subsidise the arts was there were, this is slightly controversial, but there were some organizations that were receiving regular funding that had maybe got so used to it that they didn't have the pressure on them anymore to be thinking creatively enough and were maybe resting on their laurels somewhat. So I do think that this will now hopefully add a new energy. That's not true of everyone. Question there. Hi, uh, my name is Sheila Menon. I run uh, Road to Reliefs, which is a networking platform for emerging short filmmakers. Um, one of the problems I'm faced with is that what I'm providing uh, is for, well, it's for emerging artists. So I need the point of entry to be 
free or as free as possible. Um, I'm all about removing barriers to entry. So finding a revenue stream or a revenue model is what's quite hard. Currently, I don't have any funding. I'm doing it for the love of it, but I want it to become more sort of self-sustaining. Um, I'm interested in crowd funding. Um, so it's a question for you, I suppose, Hen. Is, um, do, well, I wanted to know whether you get involved in the funding in the campaigns at all, or whether you just kind of provide the platform for the, for people to do it. Um, and also, um, obviously, I'm already running something, but does it only really work if you've got a kind of clearly defined project? Because I'm an organisation, and I don't see that I can just kind of put something up and go, give us money to, for us to keep on doing what we're already doing. Um, um, in terms of whether I get involved, um, I also I set up, we did this and did it slightly for the love of it too. Um, and I do the big difference with we did this. Um, and part of the reason it's difficult to scale is that actually we believed fundamentally in the relationship with the projects that were up on the site. So it has been very, very important to me to spend some time with those projects, help develop those projects and get them going. You can't run every campaign because it's not realistic. What you can, what I'm now seeking to do to, to, solve, to try and solve this problem is to start running these workshops for artists and things like that so that more artists can understand how to run their own campaigns and be prepared better before they start doing it. Because no, the rest of the platforms are platforms and they provide a, a toolkit, a series of things you can do and go and do it. Um, and that's kind of what the platforms need to do. But at the same time, I do really think it's really important to show people how to do that and to work with people to do that, which is what I'm doing more of now, actually. Um, in terms of your second question was about, remind me what it was about. It was about whether it needs to be a kind of clearly defined project. Because oh, yeah, I'm an organisation. I, I think you need to be able to... Um, give it, you need to be able to sell it. So it needs to be an idea that, that will stimulate people. And the difficulty with it is as well, is if you're asking for an amount of money, you have to deliver something. So I, you, you can't go, I don't think it works for core costs. I don't think if you say, you know, we need to pay for some, for an administration person in the office, you're going to get that same engagement from your audience. Um, so I do think it needs to be a project, but I'd say with something like what you're doing, from what I understand, is you could take a collective, or you know, you could say these five emerging filmmakers want to do this, we'll deliver this. They each need five hundred pounds to get off the yeah. ground. We're going for this, and you can box it. There are ways you can do that. The story could be around it. Yeah, completely. I just was curious as well how, as the crowd a representative of crowdfunding websites, how you, what your financial model is, you take a cut from the money that people raise on your website. Yeah, well, what we, um, as I say, we've now um, merged with people fund it, so it's slightly different. But when we ran it purely as we did this, we took 5% of every successful target raised. We took nothing if you didn't raise the money. Um, and really, that just covers the cost You're of, not gonna get of the website. <laughs> no. <laughs> so it really is about making, getting the money to the arts. It doesn't go it's anywhere not a else. Business model for no, you, is it? no, no. <laughs> it's, uh... Any more questions? Yes. Hi. Thanks. 
Um, my name's Savannah Henley. I'm from the Arts Council England. Um, my question's for the three ladies, but obviously you will all come at this from a different point, but if you could each briefly talk about cost, um, sort of resourcing behind each of the bits that you've talked about, and kind of um, time, really. So obviously with Jessica, it's about apps. Hen, obviously the cost isn't, but kind of the time frame from someone comes up with the idea to applying to it kind of comes to the end. And Jane, I was wondering if you could share any good examples about people turning websites into mobile friendly ones and if you had any good examples or kind of the cost time effort of that eBay. versus people thinking about um, apps just briefly if you could run through that thank you I start? <laughs> okay so um, as I mentioned we do we do a, broad, a, a wide variety of things so um, just to give you a kind of scale um, an audio guide um, that might be a 45 minute experience at a site um, might take something like 12 weeks. Um, costs are very, very difficult to, um, to give simply because it really depends on the kind of, if you want interviews, if you want more than one narrator, you know, things like that. Um, and we work on a number of different business models. So um, it might be a, a straightforward sale where the institution um, pays for a production. We might do a partnership model where um, we actually have we actually staff a distribution point at, for example, the National Gallery. So when you go to the National Gallery, it's our staff that serve you and hand you the audio guide, and then then there will be a revenue split um, on that on that sale between ourselves and our partners, being the gallery. Um, obviously, the scale moves up as you get more more exciting in terms of multimedia or apps um, applications. If, if content is created, we can turn around an app in a couple of weeks. Um, we have all the, all the in-house um, uh, people to do that, but it's a multimedia tour, full-blown, interactive. It could be up to 16 weeks, say. Um, again, working with the same models as I explained before, and costs for, I suppose, starting at audio, you're looking at sort of, um, for a 45-minute experience, maybe sort of 6,000 upwards. Multimedia, you might start at twelve to 14,000 upwards, and then an app, unfortunately, completely depends on you know, what you want to integrate, um, where you want to post it, and all that kind of thing. But um, if anybody wants more information, I'll, I'll be outside. <laughs> and then all the costs to keep it running. Yeah, the hosting costs, um, it, it differs with client to client. Some clients like to host, or we do. Um, but um, we, we try and build that into our initial um, packages so that it, there's no hidden costs hopefully coming out. Um, so time frame is my question, isn't it? And sort of how quickly it takes to turn it around. Um, well, the way we did this has run up until now has been in terms of the suggested time frame and the amount of time we gave people to run a project was a month. Um, some crowdfunding platforms let you run a project, a campaign for as long as you want. Others stop it at three months. We decided the optimum amount of time was really four weeks because um, of actually being up live, running a campaign, starting at zero, ending at £2,000 or whatever you were going for. Um, and the reason that we came to that conclusion is it's like anything that it, when you're running something that requires momentum and energy and engagement, people get bored. And when we did allow it to go for three months, there were big dips in the middle and kind of sinking feelings and everyone got bored and it didn't get very far. So 
I would say the optimum amount of time to run a crowdfunding campaign for is a month. However, there's an amount of work you need to do before you do it. In terms of actually writing a pitch, putting together the thing that goes on the website, I think you should be able to pull that together in a day, really. Maybe do it in two half days so you don't get kind of, you know, you keep your creative juices going. But it doesn't take long to pull that bit together. What does take a while to pull together is to make sure that your database is in a good order, that your communication tools are set up, and that you have a plan. Because if you run a crowdfunding campaign without a plan, it's um, unlike you need to know who you're communicating with when, what your targets are, who you need to get it out to. So a bit of work needs to go in before, but I'd say a month while you're up there. That's it. I'm OK. Well, good. the issues with good mobile friendly are about, if you think about it, somebody is looking at your website from their phone on the move. So the best mobile-friendly sites are the ones that take the experience to the person on the move. So, for example, Culture 24 UK, which is a site we publish, which is a sort of magazine site, listings about arts and culture. When you go to it on the desktop, it's got lots and lots of news and stuff, and there's a search box. We've built a mobile-friendly version that totally transforms that website, it's not, it is, from your point of view, you won't even think it's the same site, but it is absolutely sitting on the same database and all the same information. But what it's doing is it's saying, where are, you know, do you want to see stuff near you or do you want to search for something on a place? So it's changing your information based on what you know the user will be. So the best ones will be when you consider that. So it might be something like, um, does your ticketing app work on your mobile app? And it might be that all you need is a simple, is a three pages of your website that say how to find you, where the map is, and how to buy a ticket to the latest show. You may not need to make the whole thing. So it's around getting into the head of what the user is doing that makes it good. And the best one, I mean, you know, eBay is fantastic. Lots of the newspaper sites are fantastic. And they are different experiences from the desktop site. And when you think about why they've changed it, you can understand, oh, OK, I get it. That's why they've done that. And then think what that means for you. But it's, um, it is complicated because it depends what system your website is built on. And lots of bespoke systems spit out mobile-friendly quite easily, like WordPress, whereas lots of systems that developers might sell you, they'll want to then rebuild you the mobile-friendly version. It won't just happen. There's an interesting, just to, just to follow on that point, there's an interesting number that uh, comes out of Google's research, which is that um, the average time the average time from search to completion of of of, of process on a on the desktop search is a month, and the average length of time from from search to uh, completion of, of task on the mobile search is an hour, which just gives you a completely different uh, perspective perspective on on how people are using these devices differently, and therefore how, as Jane says, you weight the two the different elements of what you want to uh, you want to get across. Uh, we are out of time for questions, ladies and gentlemen. So please join me in thanking our three panellists, Jessica, Anne and Jane. This podcast is produced by Arts Council England. For more content like this, visit artscouncil.org.uk or soundcloud.com forward slash Arts Council England.